please open them up with me to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 46. Jeremiah, chapter 46. Excuse me. My hope today is to look at chapters 46 through 49. Four chapters today. I'm going to be obviously uh, kind of summarizing some of that. We won't be looking at each and every verse, uh, but we will be highlighting some of it. Hard to believe that we are coming to uh, the end of the book of Jeremiah. We've been working our way through. It's been uh, many months now, kind of started in chapter 1, and now we find ourselves really coming into the latter chapters. And I've grouped these chapters together here today and entitled the message, God Speaks to the Nations. Most of what we have been reading through in the book of Jeremiah are the prophecies that God was speaking to His nation, the nation of Judah and the people of Jerusalem. But Jeremiah, if you'll remember, back in chapter 1, God said, I'm going to raise you up and call you to be a prophet to the nations. Not just the nation of Israel, Judah, but also the nations. That God would speak through Jeremiah words of prophetic utterance to other nations as well. And what we see here in these chapters, and closing out most of the rest of the book of Jeremiah, are now the collection of prophecies that are aimed towards the nations that are surrounding uh, Jerusalem, those, er- those nations that have relationship and impact on the nation of Israel. God has a word for them as well. And it's an important thing to remember even today. Is there not quite a bit of rumbling today amongst the nations? Is there not a lot of uncertainty about what's going on in the world? Maybe it's always been this way or or and we just didn't realize it, but now through communication and telecommunication, we have so much more information available to us. But it seems that there just is such a rumbling in the earth today. I I think of the Arab Spring and, and all that's going on in the Middle East. I think also of just terrorism and, and the, effect, the impact that it has had on the globe. I think of the nation of Iran and what's going on there. I think of those nations currently surrounding Israel. What about China? What about Russia, Europe, the United States? I don't think you can really live in today's society and not ponder, Lord, what's happening amongst the nations? There seems to be so much going on, and it's comforting to know that God is in control of the nations. The Bible says in Psalm 22, 28, For the kingdom is the Lord's, and He rules over the nations. Amen. Psalm 46.10 Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Be still. Don't, Don't fret. Don't become anxious. Don't become worrisome. God is ultimately still in control of the nations. Yeah, but what about what's going on over here in this nation and the injustices in this nation? And God is seeing it all. God is moving it all towards ultimately what He will bring about in the last days. God directs the steps of kings and the steps of all nations. Yes, all kings shall fall down before Him. All nations shall serve Him. The Lord brings the course of the nations, the count, excuse me, the counsel of the nations to nothing. He makes the plans of the peoples of no effect. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, 
the people he has chosen as his own inheritance. It's a comfort to us today to know that God is still ruling the nations. It's a comfort to the people of God in Jeremiah's day, even in a time of trouble, even in a time of difficulty and discipline and judgment, God still brings a word of comfort to them and God still speaks to the nations surrounding them so that as God fulfills these prophetic words, the heart of God's people draws comfort. When God says, this is what I'm going to do to this nation, and then it comes to pass, He declares beforehand what will take place. When it comes to pass, those that know the Lord and those that know His word, we're encouraged. We draw comfort. We draw strength. We see even some of that going on today. Prophecy being fulfilled. The nations that God called out, in some cases over 2,500 years ago, we see them aligning and coming into prophetic vision exactly as the Lord described. We'll talk about that a little bit later today as I close my thoughts. But how encouraging it is to know that we can be still today and know that God is the director of all nations and is ultimately in control of all the earth. Well, let me give you a quick survey of these chapters. I want to talk a little bit about each of them uh, specifically, that I, some of the points that are relevant. But these four chapters, there's going to be eight nations that are mentioned in these four chapters, 46 through 49. And I'll just give you a quick survey of them. In chapter 46, God is going to speak prophetically to Egypt. Chapter 47, the Philistines are mentioned. In chapter 48, Moab and the Moabites. In chapter 49, there are five separate nations listed, the Ammonites, the Edomites, uh, Damascus, which was where the Syrians would be, Kedar and Hazor, that's one group of people, and then Elam. And uh, these had different geographical places, obviously, surrounding Israel. And we'll get into a little bit of that as we go through them. But what I want you to look at, and I'm going to try and just pull out, I won't, we won't cover each and every nation, but we want to, I want to draw your attention to at least some of those nations that the Lord's prophecies speak into some, some detail. And what I want you to consider today is that God is getting ready to judge these nations. God is going to be punishing these nations. And I want us to, to try and ask this question, why? Why is God bringing judgment against these nations? What's going on in the heart of men? What's happening in these people's lives that God now has brought them to a place where he's going to judge them? In the same way that he judged uh, his own nation, he is now going to judge these Gentile nations, and he's going to use Babylon, this also a, a Gentile nation. That's the nation that he used to judge and punish Judah, his own people. And he's also going to use this Babylon as a world power to judge these other nations as well. God raises up a nation, uses it for his purpose, and then we'll also we'll see uh, next week as we get into chapters 50, 51, God will also deal with Babylon as well. God is, is the, the ruler over all nations. They rise and fall, but his words stand. So what's happening in these nations? What's going on that God calls out specifically to deal with as he's sending judgment? Well, the first nation that we mentioned there in chapter 46 is Egypt. And again, I'm, I'm just picking out. We, we don't have the time to, to read all of this. Some of these chapters are somewhat lengthy. And uh, I want, you know, I encourage you to read these on your own, but basically it's a call to judgment, and I want us to highlight some of the things that, 
that give us an indication of why this judgment is coming. So in uh, chapter 46, at least verses 1 through 26, it's, an, it's the nation of Egypt that's being dealt with. And look with me in verse 25. And we see something of what God is dealing with. <clears throat> the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel says, Behold, I will bring punishment on Ammon of No and Pharaoh and Egypt with their gods and their kings, Pharaoh and those who trust in him. And I will scatter them into the hand of those who seek their lives, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and the hand of his servants. Afterward, it shall be inhabited as in the days of old, says the Lord. God specifically calls out these false gods that the nation of Egypt has embraced. I think I've shared with you, I had an opportunity, really a privilege, some, uh, on a family trip. We were invited to go and see some of the land of Egypt and seeing some of the ruins that have been preserved and kind of reconstructed, some of the pyramids and some of the ancient cities. And almost all of the walls and all of the, the uh, architecture is covered with you know, different inscriptions to the Egyptian gods. And they had dozens and dozens of gods that they worshipped and all... You see these in different temples. You see this, this pagan uh, culture that existed in the ancient days of Egypt. Of course, all of those gods are now recognized as just false uh, superstition of the ancient Egyptians. Beautiful, you know, uh, archaeology, wonderful sightseeing, but the gods are false. The gods are no more, nor are they worshipped anymore. But God's saying that I'm going to punish you, Egypt, because Egypt was a land that worshipped other gods, many other gods. And not only did they worship other gods, but you'll say that, you see there in verse 25, I'm going to judge you and your gods, and I'm going to judge Pharaoh and those that have trusted in him. In that culture, even Pharaoh was considered something of a deity. The leaders themselves became gods and ruled as gods. And so the one true and living God is going to send judgment against this nation for its pagan worship and for this uh, Pharaoh, you know, uh, who imagined himself to be God and those that have put their trust in him. And you'll see this theme throughout as we look at the various nations that God speaks to. It, it identifies a false trust. You see, God did not create us that we would have no relationship with him. God did not create us to kind of create our own gods and create our own religion and live our own lives and, and have no relationship with Him. No, we were made to have fellowship with Him. We have been made to have a relationship with God, that our lives would glorify the true and living God. He's the one that created us for His purposes and for His pleasure. And so as you see these nations just completely ignoring Him and living about their own uh, lives and trusting in everything but the true and living God, this is what God calls out. God wants his people to, and wants all men to know him and to look to him as true and living God. Well, the Egyptians failed to do that and God sent judgment, trusting in their leaders. This was a false hope. Now, we are called to pray for our leaders, but we are not called to worship our leaders, nor are we called to trust in our leaders. Our trust is in the Lord. We've got some elections coming up here, I think, next year. And boy, there's so much already in the, in the news and in you know, the parties and the candidates already beginning to battle and debate. 
Well, it's important that we, as you know, Christian citizens of this nation, that we do our part, that we vote, that we take an interest in these things. But my trust, let's be honest with you, is not in the leadership of this country. My trust, my confidence is not in the leadership that we've elected into this state. Now, I'm, I'm vastly interested and I, I, I want to be active, but my confidence, my trust is in the Lord. God is ultimately in control of the United States and the state of California, the city of Monrovia. God is the one who I'm looking to. Yes, I'm, I'm considering. Yes, I'm evaluating. Yes, I'm trying to do my part as a godly citizen in the land. And I'm praying for my leaders as God has instructed me to do. But my hope is in the Lord, not in any leadership or any man or any, any uh, uh, political party that might come into power. We look to the Lord. Secondly, the Ammonites. We see in chapter uh, 49. I'm uh, jumping ahead a little bit. I'm only going to pull out some of the ones that I mentioned uh, that I think are of worth highlighting here today. There are other nations. I already surveyed those, but I'm skipping some. And I am going to come back to chapter 48 in just a moment and because uh, I have a little more to discuss there. So... Allow me to bounce back and forth here just a little bit. The Ammonites we find in chapter 49 in verses 1 through 6, God calls out their judgment. And notice what their false hope was with me in verse 4. Why do you boast in the valleys, your flowing valley, O backsliding daughter, who trusted in her treasures, saying, Who will come against me? This is a people that, uh, of course, they also worshipped pagan gods. They were the ones that worshipped Molech, and Molech was the one that even involved child sacrifice. You remember they polluted even God's people and coaxed them into participating, and, and so much so that God rebuked the nation of Israel as well, saying, you know, you've done things that did not even enter into my mind. Such an uh, you know, abomination. But not only were they idol worshipers, they were also self-sufficient. They had a false sense of security, and it was in their wealth. It was a very wealthy culture. And they imagined that somehow, who can come against us? We, we sense, uh, you know, we're, we're so secure, we're so provided for, we're abundantly wealthy, and we have no lack, we have no need. And this is a problem with wealth. Wealth can give a false sense of security say, well, pastor, I don't have that problem. <laughs> and most of us don't, but some do. And let me just say this, that in our country, we are so wealthy compared to so many other cultures. And what you and I, what, what we would consider even very, maybe even lower middle class, you're living like kings compared to some of the other cultures in the world. And we, we, we lose touch with that. We, we take for granted. We imagine these things that we have as, as rights, not needs. And then we go on beyond that to have to have all of our wants fulfilled. Be careful to have, that you might that you misplace your security. I, I remind you of uh, Jesus' words to his church in Revelation chapter three. Because you say I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be removed and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. 
As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Jesus speaking even into the church. Church of Laodicea. He says, listen, you imagine yourself to be rich. You imagine yourself to have need of nothing. You have come to a false sense of security because of your material gain. And Jesus is calling him out and saying, listen, you're, you don't realize you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. It's not material things that you need, child of God. God, Jesus would counsel you to buy from Him gold refined in the fire that you may be rich. Put on those, those works of gold, those, those things done in faith in Christ. Jesus said, don't store up treasure on earth. Store up treasure in heaven as you walk in obedience, as you serve the Lord, as you look to be used for the, by the Lord. These are the true riches. These are the true treasures. And when we stand before Him, these are the things that will, will last and having been refined. But well, we, we move on and look at, again, in chapter 49, we look to the Edomites. We find their judgment uh, prophesied in verses 7 through 22. And these Edomites... Um, what, what is it that they trusted in? Well, look at verse 7. Against Edom, thus says the Lord of hosts, Is wisdom no more in Timon? Has counsel perished from the prudent? Has their wisdom vanished? This is a people who were trusting in their own wisdom. The Ammonites were trusting in their wealth. The Edomites seemed to be trusting in their wisdom, and God calls them out. These are people who imagine themselves to be quite educated, quite sophisticated. It reminds me a little bit of our culture today. You know, uh, the whole idea of science is, uh, you know, seemed to be superior to any kind of Christian thinking. In fact, if you're a person of faith, if you're a person who believes in things like creation, you're, you're looked at as kind of, you know, a little dim-witted you know, a little old-fashioned, time to wake up and come into the, you know, sophisticated understandings of science. I was watching again, kind of following some of the, this political campaigning that's going on, and one of the candidates was declaring his faith and saying, you know, I believe in creationism. I believe it should be taught in our schools. And oh, how some of the media, oh my gosh, they were just how, you know, how ridiculous. How could anybody, one guy, one commentator said, you know, I don't really care about his faith, but I do care that he's that stupid that he would believe those things. I don't want anybody like that in office. Again, someone trusting in their own wisdom that somehow science and the theories of evolution have answered the questions of where we come from and who we are and why we're here. Of course, science has not been able to disprove anything about creation. Science tries. Science tries to, you know, I should say science. Science ungodly science tries to disprove God, but they're unable to do so. But there is room for science and faith, isn't there? In fact, I believe that good science brings in the Christian worldview and considers the, the uh, handiwork of a creator, an intelligent designer, and then science really begins to make sense, and the glory and the beauty of the creator and what he has done comes into focus. These are people who trusted in their own wisdom. Hold your place there. I want you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians. It's a famous passage. 
probably read it, heard it quoted many times, but it's worth noting here in considering our topic. A people that have trusted in their own wisdom. As I look to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, follow with me just beginning at verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For the Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than than men. Verse 27, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And he goes on. But we see here that it pleased God to take something as foolish as this simple message. A simple message that God, the creator of all life, so loves His creation that He sent His own Son as a man to die on a cross for our sins, to pay the penalty for sin, that we might know forgiveness and that we might have relationship with Him and that we might enjoy eternal life. You know, that's a message that even a young child can understand. You talk to a young child, I remember it was explained to me as a young child. And this is the way it was put. Now, have you ever had a spanking? Oh, yes, I've had a spanking. Well, imagine someone that would come when you get in trouble, and they, instead of, they love you so much, instead of you taking the punishment for something you've done, they say, no, don't spank little Richie. Spank, spank me instead. I'll take it for him. You know, in my young mind, that, that sounded like such a good thing. <laughs> It seems simple, so much so that that those who imagine themselves wise, you know, they, they, they dispel it. But it's the power of the gospel. To those of us that are being saved, Jesus Christ is the answer. He is the way, the truth, and the life. We 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 need not our wisdom but God's. Let's move on back to, to Jeremiah. We're in chapter twenty uh, excuse me, forty nine. Let's consider Damascus, also known as Syria, or the Assyrians. Chapter 49, you'll find them in verses 23 through 27, and I call your attention to verse 25. Verse 25. Why is the city of praise not deserted, the city of my joy? Again. God calling out a judgment against Damascus and those inhabitants. 
And he points out here in verse 25 that it was a city of praise. Why haven't you abandoned? There, my judgment is coming. Why do you stay? This city of praise, the city of my joy. It seems that those in Syria, this Damascus, these were a people who were trusting something in their reputation, in their own name, in their fame, if you will. It was, they were known as a glorious city, a city of fame. Oh, we would never fall. I mean, we have this reputation just kind of on the fact of who they thought they were. They imagined themselves, you know, uh, secure from any kind of discipline or judgment, that God could not touch them. They, they thought because of their own reputation that they were somebody. But the Bible says that it's important not to think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. In fact, it was Jesus who, who spoke against the scribes and Pharisees in Luke 20 and verse 46. He said, Beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes. They love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the best places at feasts. He said, You know, beware of these guys who walk around thinking that their reputation makes them something. They wear all the right clothing, they're greeted in the marketplace. Oh, hello, scribe, hello, Pharisee. Hello, Mr. So-and-so. Oh, aren't you so-and-so? You know, my wife had her hair cut this week. <clears throat> and she was telling me about the experience. And um, uh, by the way, it turned out beautiful. <laughs> and, uh, you know, she, there's, a, there's a brother that cut her hair and he goes to this church. And uh, so it was a blessing. She wanted to try as a new thing for her, try a new stylist. And well, she said when she got there, he was just so, you know, nervous and upset that she had come in. Oh my, you're the pastor's wife. And now what if, you know, it's just, you know, my, I'm probably making it worse for him right now. But, you know, Tony was telling me, and she just she was laughing about it, saying, "You know, well, what difference does it make? I'm just another head of hair. Do your best, you know." But and it's unfortunate that I think sometimes even we we give people that false sense of pride and think, you know, we we tend to lift people up on pedestals and, and imagine them to be something that that they're not. And this is what's happening to in the city of Damascus. They they imagine themselves to be somebody and. It, it, makes them in, it makes them falsely secure in their own reputation. Jesus would warn against that. You know, it's better to recognize that we are nothing special, that we are just sinners who need to be saved by the grace of God. You know, I, I thank God for those accomplishments that, that men and women are able to achieve through education, through hard work, through and, and, and there is a blessing in that. But you know, in the end, we're all just sinners saved by grace. Another pastor I heard had, was speaking on 9-11 and talking about the tragedy that had happened there in uh, New York. And there was a picture that he showed that two had, two had fallen, two men had fallen to the, you know, had fallen and that they were killed during the attack. And one was a very high-powered Wall Street broker and the other was just a homeless man, or excuse me, I think just a janitor in the building. And here they both lay dead. And, and just the profoundness of 
no matter what they were in life, and their reputation does not precede them in heaven. They're just men fallen together in a terrible tragedy. Oh, that we would not imagine ourselves to be somebody in reputation. Not imagine ourselves to you know, have some kind of status that is really no status at all. That we would remind ourselves that we are just people that need a Savior. And thank God for Jesus Christ. We move on. And we see here in Kedar and Hazor, this is a people of the east, mentioned there in chapter 49, verses 28 through 33. These were kind of a roaming people. These were the Bedouins of their day, the nomads. And look with me in verse 31, something of their false security. Arise, go up to the wealthy nation that dwells securely, says the Lord, which has neither gates nor bars, dwelling alone. These were people that kind of uh, felt a certain self-sufficiency. They were, you know, self-made people. They didn't have the, the formal wall, city walls around them. They, they actually prided themselves on their independence. And they kind of moved from place to place. They were in a general area, but they, they really didn't need anybody. They were trusting in themselves and trusting in their own kind of independent spirit. You see that and hear that even today, don't you? Sometimes, I don't need anybody. I don't even need the Lord in my life. That's not for me. That's for the weak. That's for the needy. Self-made people, independent spirits. And, you know, there is something about that. There is something about God, I think, giving us that kind of uh, independence and that, that, that idea of being self-sufficient. But not to the place where we don't need the Lord. We need to be uh, self-reliant. We do need God has given us uh, abilities, right? He's given us the ability to work. He's given us minds to think. He's given us skills to put to work. But we don't imagine that all of that can exist without God or should exist without God. But that's what was going on here. These were people that were self-sufficient, independent. And you run into that even today. People that have no need for God because they're just they're free spirits. Well, free spirits really lead to bondage if you never come into relationship with God through faith in Christ. Praise God for our uniqueness. Praise God that not a one of us has been made the same. And each of us is unique. And each of us has different looks and abilities and personalities and, and aspirations. Thank God for the diversity that He has brought into our lives. But don't imagine that somehow that independence would would give you a freedom to live apart from the Lord. You need the Lord. And God is judging a people who have just completely ignored Him and instead pursued their own interests. We move on. I want to talk about the Elamites. We see this. This, is, this would have been the Persians. This would have been in today's modern-day Iran. This is a people in the East, and we find them listed in chapters 34 through... Excuse me, chapter 49 verses 34 through 39. And we see what they trusted in right here in verse 35. Follow with me. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will break the bow of Elam, the foremost of their might. Against Elam I will bring the four winds from the four quarters of heaven and scatter them toward all those winds. They, there shall be no nations where the outcasts of Elam will not go. This is a people who trusted in their own weapons and might. They were known as skillful archers. And you see there in verse 35, God says, I'm going to break 
the bow of Elam, and they are going to run and they are going to flee. Again, a, play, a, a false security is to place it in your own physical strength and might, to place it in you know, uh, weapons of war. When God begins to turn and judge a nation, there is no army, there is no power, there is nothing that can stop what God is ultimately going to do. And again, God has to speak to these nations because they've become independent of the Lord. They're living without any thought of God. They have found, for various reasons, different places of security and false securities, none of it turning them to God. And now God is tearing those things down. The last nation I want to speak to you about is this nation of Moab. And I'm asking you to turn back with me to chapter 48 to see them. I've saved them for last and gone a little bit out of order because it's the longest of the chapters we're looking at today. And God gives us a little more detail about the Moabites and what, what he's speaking to there. You find it all through the chapter. It's, the whole chapter is devoted to the Moabites. And look with me in verse 29. We begin to see some of their problems. Chapter 48, verse 29. We have heard the pride of Moab. He is exceedingly proud of his loftiness and arrogance and pride and of the haughtiness of his heart. Pride. This is a people that are proud. These are people that, have, that are lofty and arrogant, haughty of heart. This is somebody that Bible says that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. So right away, Moabites have put themselves in opposition to God because of their own pride and their arrogance. What caused some of this pride? I think you'll look back with me to verse 11 and 12. I think it gives us a little insight as to what was going on in, in the nation. Moab has been at ease from his youth. He has settled on his dregs and has not been emptied from vessel to vessel, nor has he gone into captivity. Therefore his taste remained in him and his scent has not changed. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I shall send him wine workers who will tip him over and empty his vessels and break the bottles. Moab shall be ashamed of Chemosh and the house of Israel, as the house of Israel was ashamed of Bethel, their confidence. God, through Jeremiah, uses this imagery of winemaking to talk about this, this attitude that's taking place in Moab. They were at ease. They were not feeling a sense of need for God. They had forgotten Him. He had, they had diminished Him in their priority. In, in the ancient days, the way wine was made, after the juice from the wine was collected, it was, it was collected in containers, bottles, vats, and it was allowed to sit and ferment for a, for a time. And the sediment out of the wine would, would sink down to the bottom. And this, this sediment that began to collect at the bottom was known as the dregs or the lees. And if you left the wine too long in the one bottle, in the one container, then the, the dregs would actually begin to spoil the wine because it, the, the sediment becomes sour and begins to spoil. And it would actually ruin the wine if you left the wine undisturbed too long. So to purify and to make the wine drinkable, you would let it settle 
sediment would get to the bottom and then you would pour it into another vessel and kind of take off the top, the wine, leaving the dregs. You would then, in this vessel, allow that same process. More sediment would begin to settle. And you would leave it for a spell and then you would, again, pour it off. So you would pour it back and forth from vessel to vessel, taking off the purity of the wine and leaving the dregs, that which would spoil, that which would sour the taste, you would leave that behind. And God is saying of Moab, you know, you've been unsettled. You've been, or excuse me, you've been settled too long. You've not been stirred up. You, you've, you've, you've become at ease. And you, you've, you've spoiled you. And the dregs, the sediment in, your, in the bottom of your, your, your vats have now spoiled your whole, your whole nation. You've been too, things have gone too easy for you. You know... It reminded me of those passages that the Apostle Paul, when speaking to Peter, he said, I remind you, I'll just quote these to you, 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 6, he said, I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Peter would also say, yes, I, I think it is right as long as I am in this tent to stir you up by reminding you writer of Hebrews, he says, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together as is the manner of some. There is something about keeping our hearts stirred and active for the Lord, that if we become too comfortable or we begin to kind of rest on our lees, so to speak, settle, that the, the, those things that are the sediment, the impurities of our life will actually begin to spoil the purity of our spiritual life. And God is using this imagery to speak to Moab. And, and I think it's true. I think you would agree with me. Listen, uh, we all love a little ease, don't we? <laughs> we all love a little time of, of vacation. We all enjoy a little time of relaxation. But, you know, too much ease doesn't necessarily produce the best in us, does it? In fact, the Lord often will send a little disturbance. He'll just tip our vessel over, won't He? And pour us into another vessel. Just when we're getting comfortable, just when we think things are going pretty good, what does God do? He stirs us up again. He comes in and He pours up. Why? Because He loves us. He knows what we can handle. He knows that too much settling will actually spoil the wine. And God wants to produce a purity in your life. God wants to wants to rid you of the, the spoils of the flesh. And if you get too comfortable and too lax, as happened here in Moab, it actually began to spoil them and ruin them as a nation. God will disturb us. He will pour us from vessel to vessel in order to purify those things in our lives. And we have to be willing to allow that process, don't we? We strive so hard to get everything just right so we can just settle. Well, it may be that God doesn't want you settled there. That's why Paul said, you know, stir up the gift. Peter said, I'm going to stir you up. When you come together, the rite of Hebrews, stir one another up to love and to good works. Challenge one another. Take some steps of faith. Don't get too comfortable. Don't let yourself just get so settled that your Christian life is just kind of this routine and it lacks, you know, a sense of purpose and burden and, and stirring of the Lord. God can do it for you, but I, the Bible encourages us to do it for ourselves. I, I would rather stir it up myself than have to wait for Him to tip the vessel over. 
he still does that sometimes and and i've learned to trust him and, and god is working on your life too maybe you're stirred up today maybe god is just just poured out pouring you out of one vessel into another and there you are complaining god why are you why are you ruining my life and god's saying i'm trying to purify your life if i leave you here too long you're going to be ruined You've got, I've got to keep, a, keep you stirred because that's what gives you a heart after me. That's what keeps your heart toward me. And that's what purifies the work that I'm doing in you. Also, something here in chapter 48 that I think is worth noting is Jeremiah's response to this judgment pronounced on the Moabites. Look at verse 31 and 32. Here's how Jeremiah responds. Therefore, I will wail for Moab. And I will cry out for all Moab. I will mourn for the men of Kirheres, O vine of Sibma. I will weep for you with the weeping of Jezer. Also look at verse 36. That's Jeremiah. Jeremiah hears of this judgment and he weeps. And now the Lord himself expresses his heart over Moab. In verse 36, Therefore my heart shall wail like flutes for Moab. And like flutes my heart shall wail. You know, when judgment comes, God does not rejoice. The Bible says that He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God is not a God who is looking to judge. He is a God who will judge. But He is a God who is looking to warn. He's looking to call you to repentance. He's looking to bring your life to a place of grace and mercy that you not, not have to take any judgment. That's why He sent Jesus Christ, to take the judgment for you. And yet, hearts still reject, hearts still turn their back, and God will judge, God will ultimately punish sin. But there's no pleasure in it for the prophet, and there's no pleasure in it for the Lord. And I'm moved by that, and I, I want to challenge your heart today. I, You know, we're, we're living in times when Many people do not know the Lord. And we know what's coming. If you're, if you're a student of the Bible, if you're a Christian, you know that ultimately God is going to judge sinners. And I like what Paul said to the Philippians. Again, I, I quote to you. In Philippians 3, verse 18, For many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. The Apostle Paul was moved in the same way that Jeremiah was moved. He, he wept over those that became God's enemies, knowing ultimately what would come to them. And there needs to be something of that, I think, in the heart of all believers. There needs to be something of a grief over the lost, a grieving for the lost. There needs to be some compassion in your heart. You were once lost. You were once in that group of people that were considered enemies of God. And you have only been saved not by any righteousness of your own, not by any good works of yours, but because you put your faith and trust in a Savior. And our hearts need to be burdened for those around us, family, colleagues, the world around us. We live in amidst sinners that are going to be judged and face a holy and awesome God. And 
there needs to be something in our hearts that would be moved, just, just in the same way Jeremiah was moved. He doesn't read out these prophecies, write these prophecies out and say, Oh boy, God, get them. He says, Oh God. Some of these were, some of these were lands that he was familiar with. Moabites, Moab came from that incestual relationship with Lot and his daughters after Sodom and Gomorrah, you may remember. So they were really distant cousins to the, to the children of Abraham. And so when this judgment comes, his heart is moved. I quote a commentator here, a commentator I enjoy, and he often puts it in words that I think communicate well. Let me share this with you. Christians who have the heart of Christ share his pity for the loss. They are deeply affected by the realities of impending judgment. They are mournfully aware of the desperate spiritual condition of unbelievers. They are firmly convinced of the necessity of turning to Jesus Christ for salvation. For Christians who pattern their lives after the life of Christ, evangelism is an act of the heart as well as the will. I challenge your heart today to allow the Lord to use you to reach out in whatever place He has put you. They close here today with just a few words of grace that are laced through these passages. You know, this is, again, a, a, a prophecy of judgment coming against the people. But we also see some wonderful words of grace. In verse, and again, I'll just read these to you. They're, they're laced through these passages we've looked at. It says in, verse, in chapter 46 and 26 of, of Egypt, Afterward it shall be inhabited as in the days of old. Even though I'm judging you, Egypt, there's coming a day of restoration for you. For Moab, verse 47, Yet I will bring back the captives of Moab in the latter days, says the Lord to Ammon, but afterward I will bring back the captives of the people of Ammon, says the Lord. For Elam, but it shall come to pass in the latter days I will bring back the captives of Elam, says the Lord. And finally, these words of comfort to his own people there in chapter 46, verse 27 and 28, speaking to the nation of Israel, but do not fear, O my servant Jacob. And do not be dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save you from afar and your offspring from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return and have rest and be at ease. No one shall make him afraid. Do not fear, O Jacob, my servant, says the Lord, for I am with you. For I will make a complete end of all the nations to which I have driven you. But I will not make a complete end of you. I will rightly correct you, for I will not leave you wholly unpunished. Even in prophecies of judgment, there are words of grace, there are words of future and hope. God, after disciplining, wanting to work restoration into the heart of His people. Your heart can be encouraged today. God loves and delights in mercy and wants to bring grace and comfort to your life. I close with just this thought with you today. The Prophecy Conference, I announced it uh, down at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, happened this Friday and Saturday. I was not able to attend, but I was able to see some of it via live uh, web streaming. And it was such a blessing to, to see and hear some of the speakers that they had. And the title of the Prophecy Conference was The Coming Confederacy. We look here at Jeremiah and we see these prophecies of the nations of his day and how it must have comforted his people to know that, that God's prophetic word 
was coming to pass. And as his nation saw these prophecies come to pass, it comforted their hearts, knowing that God would fulfill all of his word to us as well. And that's what I want to give you here, just as we close. Recognize, and we don't have time to go into the details of it, but it is amazing. The nations that are coming into alignment just as prophecy back in Ezekiel 38 and 39, written 2,600 years ago. The Word of God calling out nations that would come together, a confederacy of nations that would rise up and begin to oppose Israel, that Israel would be back in her land. And these things are now coming to pass in our day. We are living to see these things prophesied thousands of years ago. And prophecy is not given to us so that we can be little fortune tellers and predict the future. Prophecy is given rather to comfort our hearts so that when things are going on, you see that God called them out before they came to pass and that gives you confidence. My God's in control. Things are coming to pass just as He said they would. And it gives a confidence in His Word. It gives a comfort to your heart that no matter what the circumstance, your God is still the authority over all nations. He is in control and our hearts can be encouraged by this today. That God's prophecies are so true and so accurate and so are His promises to me and to those that have put their faith in Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word today. These prophecies given to these nations, Lord, back in Jeremiah's time. And yet we see, Lord, a number of number of issues in the heart of the men and women there that still ring true today. Lord, man hasn't changed that much. It seems that the heart of men are still looking to be independent, still wanting to trust in other gods or themselves or in other things. It seems, Lord, that, that, that even our own culture continues to pursue a, a track that would, that would not need God and somehow just live without you in our lives. And Lord, it's just rebellion. It's just pride. And we see it in the nations of old. And we see it, Lord, in our own nations today. And we see it sometimes, Lord, even in our own hearts. And I pray today that you would speak to us out of these examples in Scripture. That we would maybe take inventory of our own heart this morning. Lord, are there places that I'm not trusting you? Are there, are there things going on in my own life, God? Am I, am I impressed with some reputation of my own? Am I imagining myself to be secure in something other than my relationship with you? Lord, I ask that you would correct my heart and bring me to that place of humility and dependence upon you. And Lord, I want to pray as your heads remain bowed, say in an attitude of prayer with me as we close. I, I want to pray for those today that may need to respond to the Lord and His Word. Maybe you're here today and you've never put your trust in the Lord. You've never really given your life completely to Jesus Christ. You're trusting in either your own righteousness, maybe you're trusting in your career, your wealth, your, your wisdom, your intelligence your reputation. Maybe you're trusting in your own righteousness. Maybe you imagine yourself to be a pretty good person. 
and you just don't see the need for God in your life. You're too independent. You want to do your own thing. But God has challenged your heart today, and He's spoken to you in a way that you recognize, I need a Savior. I am just a man or a woman that, that needs a relationship with my Creator, and I too fall short. I'm a sinner. I acknowledge that. I admit I'm less than perfect. And to come to a, to a holy and perfect God, I need someone to mediate. And that mediator is Jesus Christ. There's no, no one else. God has given him for you to be saved. That he's come and died on a cross for your sin. And maybe you're here today and you want to embrace that by faith. Or maybe you know the Lord and you need to rededicate your life to him. Maybe you've been... Maybe you've been running your own show here. You're, you're a Christian. You, you at one time had a, a faith in Him or even a close relationship, but you've pretty much just been out doing your own thing. <laughs> living your life as though you, you didn't need Him or there was just no room in, him, room in your life for Him. He crowded Him out through distractions or ambitions or other things. And you want to come back to the Lord and reestablish your heart with Him. I want to pray for you today. So if you're here this morning and you need the Lord, maybe for the first time, or you need to come back to the Lord, would you simply raise your hand where you're seated so that I can see you and I'll pray for you. Anybody here this morning, you need your heart to be prayed for. I bless you, ma'am, here, one on my right. Anyone else before I pray? Father, I do thank you for this heart that has responded this morning. I pray that you would bring comfort. I pray that you would bring peace. I pray that you would bring healing. Lord, I pray that you would forgive and cleanse. And I pray that you would reestablish a relationship wherein you are the Lord, where you are the priority where you are first, not second, third, or somewhere in the lineup, but you are first. And God, I have to believe that there are many of our hearts here today that, that need to maybe check our priorities. And so, God, we give those things to you now. We ask for you to speak to us and minister to us by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.